The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. By looking at the patterns of diagnosis, procedure codes, health service codes, especially dual medical equipment codes, we can estimate what that person's frailty index number is going to be. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article titled Frailty and Clinical Outcomes of Direct Oral Anticoagulants versus Warfarin in Older Adults with Atrial Fibrillation, a cohort study. The first author, Dr. Day Kim, is a geriatrician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an epidemiologist. He's assistant professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School. His main area of study is the impact of the care of frail patients. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I was so excited when I read your article because you addressed such a common problem in medicine. We have a strong indication to anticoagulate someone, but we're worried about anticoagulating them because they're frail but I don't even know how to define frailty. So maybe we could start out by talking about how you define frailty and how you measure frailty, because that's crucial to the beautiful article that you did. Well, thank you. First of all, um, you know, pleasure to be here. And I'm excited about the work that I've done and published recently. So start with the definition of frailty. So frailty is is a geriatric syndrome that is characterized by decreased physiologic reserve in our body and therefore reduced ability to tolerate a stressful event. It occurs as a result of accumulated changes, age-related changes in our multiple physiologic system and accumulation of chronic diseases with, with aging. So as a result of frailty, the person with frailty have, you know, has a higher risk of having adverse events in the setting of stressors, such as, uh, you know, drug side effect or, you know, surgical procedures. And it is very common uh, in, in the population. It's one in 10 community dwelling older adults and uh, one in two in the nursing home setting. So this is an important problem. And uh, the clinician should be more aware of what frailty is, how to measure frailty. But the big problem is that we don't necessarily measure frailty in our routine practice. I take care of a lot of older patients on the inpatient service, and we often say that the person's frail, but but I'm not sure we know whether the patient's frail or not. How do you measure frailty when you see an older person, and how do you impute frailty from Medicare data? That's a great question. Well, I think the, the frailty exam that you just mentioned, what we call eyeball test. So just look at the person and then you, as a clinician with experience, you know that person is frail or not. 
But that has a lot of uh, problem in terms of communicating the degree of frailty, because frailty is a spectrum, it's not yes or no. And what you see a person frail may appear different you know, to me with a different clinical experience and, and, and background and training. So there have been several validated frailty uh, tools that we can use. And some of them are simple, like self-reported, you know, some questionnaires that uh, one can um, you know, fill out. Or some other tools are more comprehensive, uh, like requiring measurement of physical performance, such as like walking speed or hand grip strength, or doing a comprehensive geriatric examination, which is essentially a, the most comprehensive assessment that you can do for an older person. But the, the, really the dilemma is when we ask our colleagues why you know, we're not measuring frailty. The, the most common answer that I get uh, is lack of time. And uh, the second most common answer is we don't know what to do with that information. So that's why we're not really measuring frailty in the clinical practice. And since we don't have the measures of frailty in our you know, databases, then we cannot generate the evidence to inform us how to treat frail patients differently from non-frail patients. So this really creates a cycle of dilemma. Um, so what we try to do is to come up with a, a frailty score based on Medicare claims. So for example, when a patient is seen by a healthcare provider, the doctor may give diagnosis code, perform procedures, and sometimes, you know, prescribe durable medical equipment. Somebody needing a cane, wheelchair, or wound care dressings. So these are the proxies of their functional status and their, their health in, the, in their physiologic system. So by looking at the patterns of diagnosis, procedure codes, and some of the, the health service codes, uh, especially durable medical equipment codes, we can estimate what that person's frailty index uh, number is going to be based on those patterns. So that's what we develop, uh, what we call the claims-based frailty index. And by using this score, we can measure frailty level on a population scale, as long as they're the Medicare um, beneficiary. This happens all the time to me. I get a patient admitted to my service who is anticoagulated, has atrial fibrillation, and has fallen. And I personally have several friends whose parents fell uh, on uh, anticoagulation and died because uh, they hit their heads. So I have personal reasons to be scared. Everybody has stories like that. Those are anecdotes. They, they don't tell the whole story. I know that it's hard to fight the anecdote in your own mind. And up to now, what we've been doing is we've just been saying, should we anticoagulate or not? But the thing that I love about your paper is, say, if, if you're going to anticoagulate, which is the safest anticoagulant? So before you did your analysis, what did we know about the benefit-risk balance of anticoagulation in frail elderly before your study? I think, you know, all practicing physicians uh, worry about that. 
um, the benefit and, and the risk of any coagulation. And, and as you mentioned, Bob, um, the first question is whether to anticoagulate or not. And the second question is, yes, if we decision is to anticoagulate, which agent? So I focus on the, the second part of the question. So traditionally, frail older patients are less likely to be anticoagulated or to receive any new medications in the market. So when a new drug is approved, the, uh, you know, the specialists and then providers prescribe a new medication to uh, rather healthier patients with a specific indication than frail patients with the indication and multiple other problems because we're just always conservative. Mm -hmm. And the part of it is that the clinical trial that led to the, uh, the approval of that new medication did not include many patients with frailty. So we're always cautious. So as a result, we were using Warframe a lot as before any of this DOAC uh, came out. And the frail patients had a slower uptake of DOAC uh, than, um, than non-frail patients uh, in the population. But, it, but with more data, I think the prescribers or the healthcare providers feel more and more comfortable in prescribing a particular drug or uh, the comparative drug. Tell us about the study because um, it was, it's such a clever study. I love study methods and have my entire career. And when I see someone do something as creatively as you were able to do in this study, it just warms my heart. Well, thank you for just, it's just such a, a compliment. And um, what we reported in the paper is, is quite complicated. We've done a lot of analyses. Uh, in fact, what we reported is uh, actually doing a three separate study in one paper because we did one cohort for a DOAC versus Warframe comparison, and we had three DOACs. So uh, Daviga Trend versus Warframe, that's one study. Rivaroc7 versus Warframe, that's the, the second uh, cohort. And then PIC7 versus uh, Warframe, that was uh, the third cohort. So instead of writing three papers in three separate places, we actually put everything together in one paper. And what we looked at is we assessed the, how the association of a DOAC exposure versus warfarin exposure with clinical events differs by frailty level. So we use the Medicare-based uh, claim-based frailty score to define Medicare population into three buckets no frailty, pre-frail, and frail, and how these two drugs, Edoac versus Warfarin, compare to each other in the non-frail patients and pre-frail patients and, and the frail patients. So that's kind of the overview of the study design that we did. So you can't do a randomized controlled trial. So how do you match the people who get rivaroxaban versus the patients who get Coumadin and then separately uh, dabigatran versus uh, Coumadin. So how do you match those cohorts? Yeah, that's a great question. We uh, use some, you know, something called the propensity score matching. So propensity score is a, a summary score that contains information on a lot of clinical factors that influence a treatment decision. 
so using so we summarize there could be more than 100 variables that we could measure in the data set that might influence the decision about a DOAC versus a warframe but handling more than 100 variables uh, at the same time is not easy so propensity score cleverly summarizes that information into a single variable and we match on that propensity score then we can achieve that we were able to achieve the balance in more than 100 variables uh, between a DOAC and warframe group uh, using the matching procedure so it's interesting on this podcast we now have multiple examples of people using propensity scores and i like propensity scores because it's as good as we can do when we can't do a randomized control trial. And let me see if I get if I if I explain it right. We'll take the Pixaban as uh, a an example. For all the people who got a Pixaban, we have a probability that they would have gotten a Pixaban based upon a variety of variables like age, gender, whether they use a walker, et cetera, et cetera. And then we try to find someone in the Coumadin group that has the same score. And therefore, we have people with high and low scores in the Pixaban group and high and low scores in the Coumadin group. But we leave out some of the people in the Coumadin group because it might be skewed towards lower scores. And so we, we take people out of the Coumadin group just so that we have a similar group of patients to the ones in the Pixaban group. That's absolutely correct. I'd want to make sure that I understood it because... I'm speaking for all those people out in practice who don't do propensity analysis, and uh, I hope that made sense. So let's go to table one. What are the demographics of the most frail? Well, so I, I, I think this is complicated analysis looking at three different comparisons. And then within each drug comparison, we have you know, frail, you know, pre-frail, and non-frail. But I think it's overall... You know, when you look at the APIC7 cohort versus the rivaroxaban dabigatron, APIC7 cohort was slightly older, frailer, and had more comorbidities, especially chronic kidney disease. And then when we look at the frail and, and pre-frail and non-frail within each drug comparison, what we found is that frail patients had about mean age of 78 years old. And they have more comorbidities like you know, heart failure, chronic kidney disease, dementia, fall, and, and uh, history of fracture, and also using many more uh, drugs uh, than less frail uh, comparators um, in, within each cohort. So these are the patients who never get into randomized clinical trials because they all uh, don't have exclusions. That's right. So talk about the results. Yeah, so what we looked at is, uh, is the composite endpoint of death, ischemic stroke, and major bleeding. And we also look at individual component outcome as well. But I, th I think, you know, from a clinical uh, perspective, looking at these uh, major uh, composite endpoint was uh, thought that that would be a most important uh, outcome. So what we found is that a PIC7 was associated with lower rate of this composite clinical events than warfarin in patients across all frailty level. So PIC7 was better than warfarin in non-frail, pre-frail, and frail uh, subgroups. However, 
were dabigatran and rivaroxaban were associated with a lower clinical events than warfarin only among patients with no frail uh, uh, group, but they're not necessarily better than warfarin in the pre-frail or frail subgroups. So that's kind of the main um, findings of our, our study. So you have a composite outcome. In what way was apixaban safer than Coumadin? When you look at the, the, composite, the components of the composite endpoint, major bleeding was the most common component uh, compared to ischemic stroke and mortality. So the difference of apixaban and warfarin was mostly driven by the reduction in major bleeding events because that was the most common uh, event, especially in the frail uh, subgroup. Although there were some beneficial uh, associations uh, for mortality as well as uh, ischemic stroke, but the largest events, you know, reduction with a PIC7 compared to warfarin was really driven by the major bleeding events. That's really useful because that's what we worry about. Uh, that's what we're scared to anticoagulate someone because of major bleeding events, especially when they have a major bleeding event afterwards. Now, as a caution, this is not a randomized controlled trial. And while we can read it and say, well, Pixaban seems to be better than Rivaroxaban or Dabigatran, we didn't really compare those. We couldn't compare those. So my take-home message, I think, is if I'm going to anticoagulate a frail elderly, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to try to use a Pixaban if at all possible. Is that what you think? And how worried are you about the analysis? Very uh, important question because the, the way we design our study is like conducting three separate studies. So we didn't compare a PIC7 versus the Vigatran versus Rivaroxaban. So our results do not directly answer the choice among three DOACs that we study. Right. What we can answer is warfarin versus a DOAC, right? So, so that piece is still missing. But based on our uh, findings, I do agree with your conclusion that you know a PIC7 appears to be you know the most beneficial and, and, and safest option, especially for frail older adults. And how a PIC7 compares to the other two within the same frail group. That remains to be seen because that's the one piece that's missing here in our study. So it seems that we tend to use apixaban more in the hospital, I guess, because I think it, ha it has less interference with in chronic kidney disease. Is that correct? Correct. And so many of these patients have chronic kidney disease, so that sort of makes it the default option for us often when we're starting in, in the hospital. It seems to me like there's several important lessons here. Number one is we need to think about frailty. And I'm going to speak for hospitalists because that's mostly what I do now. But I think this is also true for uh, primary care uh, physicians. We need to think about frailty in our older patients. I know 85-year-olds who are extremely healthy and active, and I know 75-year-olds who are frail. So we need to be thinking about, is this someone who's frail who we're going to have to think in a lot of different ways? This is just one of the ways that we have to think about frailty, but that would make us better internists or family physicians, if family physicians are listening to this, is to understand that 
it's not age that matters. It's not the chronological age, but the biological age. And the frail have a have a higher biological age, and are therefore are prone to more problems. Yes, that's how geriatricians think. <laughs> well, good. Well, I, I want to make sure that I was thinking like a geriatrician when I'm talking to a geriatrician. What's your final recommendation to our audience? Yeah, so I think our study data suggests the the I mean confirms the way we practice and prescribe uh, anticoagulant. Uh, we tend to go for pick seven for you know reasons like you know chronic kidney disease and so on. So our data really suggests the use of pick seven for patients with uh, frailty. And uh, and if I want to add just one more thing, you know we need a lot of evidence on how to manage frail patients differently from non-frail patients. We think about it a lot as a provider, but we don't have a lot of data to guide a decision. I think a study like this can be a, a, an example that we can use observational existing data with claim-based measures of frailty and the right statistical methods. We can improve the way we practice medicine for older patients. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for writing this most interesting study. My pleasure. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This a very interesting study focuses on two important concepts. The first is what is frailty? And uh, Dr. Kim did a very nice job of discussing the concept of frailty and admitting that mostly frailty is defined by the eyeball test, although he has developed a, a way of estimating frailty from uh, Medicare data. The second is trying to come up with the best choice of anticoagulation in frail patients who have atrial fibrillation. His analysis suggests that apixaban is at least better than Coumadin and that both dabigatran and rivaroxaban were not uh, better than Coumadin. This is preliminary data, not randomized controls data, but may impact how you make decisions about which anticoagulant to use. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.